been another extraordinary day. Stock markets opened in a state of high anxiety, which gave way to panic. Cities emptied, manufacturing stopped, restaurants closed. Everything paused. watching the end of trading today. Right now, the Dow is settling down somewhere in the down 2300 range. What happens to an economy in a standstill? It has been nearly three years since COVID-19 changed everything. Over 6 million people have died, with an estimated 700 million people infected. Governments across the world raced to impose emergency relief, such as the UK's furlough scheme. But the lasting effects of the pandemic are still with us and are set to linger for years to come. Everyone knew there would be an economic consequence to lockdowns. Was the trade-off worth it? My name is Kate Andrews. I'm the economics editor at The Spectator and your host for the last of a series sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where we've taken a look at Britain's role in the global pandemic recovery. For this episode, we shall be hearing from the major players when it comes to the British economy and its responsibilities as a global player. To begin, let's take a look back to the start of the pandemic. My first guest was Chief Secretary to the Treasury at the time, when news was breaking in February 2020 that a dangerous coronavirus was spreading across the world and had arrived in the UK. Simon Clark, who is the MP from Middlesbrough South and East Cleveland, and was the levelling up secretary in Liz Truss's administration, was one of the decision makers back in 2020 that saw spending during peacetime skyrocket to unprecedented levels. Simon, thanks for joining me. Cast your mind back to the start of the pandemic. Did you expect that the economic situation coming out of the pandemic would be as difficult as it has been? Well, I think everybody appreciated that this wouldn't be a quick fix, if you like, and that there would be a long-term dislocation. Clearly, things just got worse and worse, didn't they? And, uh, you know, you look back on uh, not just 2020, but you know, really right through to even last winter and just how uncertain things were and how difficult they were. And the clouds, which are now fully gathered, were certainly apparent then. Uh, clearly, what we couldn't have anticipated, and which has obviously made things so much harder, is the, you know, the, the compounding effect of, of war in Europe. And that's, that's you know, that, that obviously sits at the heart of so much of the, of the travails. But the shadow of the pandemic, it must be said, has been even even darker and, and cast further than I would have feared. Mm. The furlough scheme was one of the largest payouts in British history. Uh, at the time, the government's thinking was that it needed to cap how far unemployment and that headline figure would go. The labour market statistics now show it's been very difficult to get people back into work. The Spectator estimates that now over 5 million people in the UK are on some kind of out-of-work benefit. Do you think the trade-off in retrospect was worth it? I think it was necessary because fundamentally the scale of the uh, unemployment that would have been unleashed would have been unbearable, I think. And the scarring effect of that would have been would have been enormous. So do I think that we had much choice but to try and make sure that people didn't have crippling economic concerns at a time of, you know, all those other stresses, and also didn't have perverse incentives to get out there and return to work when it wouldn't have been really safe for them to do so. Uh, I think, you know, that, that I'm, I'm afraid, was necessary. Equally, we are, I, I completely accept that what has not happened, and it is a particular problem, I think, for the public sector, is any kind of normative return to work. And, you know, there is 
clearly uh, you know, a major cultural problem in, in, in many institutions. Central government is starting, albeit very imperfectly, to come back to normal, but there's a wide range of uh, effectiveness on that across Whitehall. Local government, what, stri- what strikes me on local government is that it's even, even, even more uh, severely impacted and just whole office blocks, well nigh standing, empty. Uh, I mean, the most, the single most shocking one was last uh, autumn when I found myself at the Welsh uh, government buildings in Cardiff and it was as though uh, it was Sunday night at midnight. It really was, you know, just nobody was there and the, the few that were there were literally the security people. Whilst you were levelling up, Minister, did you get a sense of the different stages of economic recovery across the country? Do you think some areas are doing better than others? And has COVID changed the levelling up parameters? Well, I think that there are two dimensions to this. There's, 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 there's first and foremost, obviously, the, the squeeze on budgets, which is going to make the levelling up programme harder to accomplish than it would otherwise have been. I mean, $400 billion on the, uh, the immediate interventions alone, let alone the compound uh, effects means that that's all you know resource that could potentially have been diverted to other and uh, frankly preferable priorities. So that's that's a regret. Fundamentally, notwithstanding that point that I've made about city centre challenges, which I think are, is real, I don't think it's it's altered the underlying dynamic, which is that the the profound difference between uh, the industrial north or in some cases the post-industrial north and the, and the Midlands and London and the greater southeast remain pretty stark because it's not just a question of uh, you know the short-term dynamics this is a multi-decadal problem of infrastructure of aspiration of education all of these things which which obviously together cumulatively make a society more or less successful they remain and uh, I do think that you know the the imperative for us to level up economically, societally, and politically is as strong as it's ever been. Simon, you talk about leveling up nationwide. Is there a case to be made for leveling up worldwide? And obviously that would be a a very broad definition. Specifically, what would that look like? I think that absolutely is uh, an element of uh, of truth in this, that a stronger global economy is something which uh, has enormous benefits for the UK, not only for our own uh, industrial and technological Base, but also because clearly the world order is being contested uh, at the moment, and it, it it is vitally important that uh, we we are making sure that uh, the, the democracies are active players in 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 the developing markets in particular. And if we if we cede that space to the authoritarian regimes, then uh, there is a wider stability problem that we're building up for the future. But but clearly, yes, I think there is that there is a. Uh, an opportunity there for us to do the right thing sort of strategically, but also clearly very much with our own industrial base's interest at heart. Simon, at a time where a lot of countries are turning inwards, decoupling, is global Britain still relevant today? I think I think we are fundamentally outward looking in our philosophy. And actually, I think uh, there's a very strong case that post-Brexit Britain appears to be more globally engaged than the European Union. One of the reasons I personally voted to leave the European Union was precisely because I thought that the the mindset of continental Europe was fundamentally defensive about trying to resist change and to maintain an increasingly uh, unstable social model by erecting ever ha- uh, higher barriers to uh, entry and competition. I think that you have to accept that the world is changing fast, that competition from uh, hosts of nations all around the world is going to become much keener uh, in the 21st century. And you need to 
liberalise your economy in order to, uh, to to successfully compete with them. So there's lots we need to do. Uh, and I, I think that one of the, the government's great strengths under Rishi is that, you know, we, we, we do have someone who, for example, will recognise that the city needs to be uh, liberated and reform of EU legacy issues like solvency too, the, uh, the, the, the capital regulations, is a really good early example of how we can try and uh, unlock new opportunities. Simon's reflections during one of Britain's most challenging times in recent history shows the staggering uncertainty each day would bring. These uncharted waters became the new normal all over the world as the virus spread to almost every corner. As economies started to spiral, nobody could know what the fallout would be from the pandemic. Some financial analysts were predicting a V-shaped recovery, but the prospect of recession has become all too clear now. Economist Nouriel Roubini, once labelled Dr. Doom for predicting the 2008 financial crash, believes the trouble is only just beginning. I fear we're going to have in the short term a global contraction and a recession. And this recession, this stagflation could last uh, for a long period of time. In my book, I have a chapter about the coming great stagflation where I identify at least 11 factors that reduce potential growth increase the cost of production, and they're potentially stagflationary. We have uh, deglobalization and protectionism. We have reshoring of manufacturing from low-cost to high-cost regions. We have aging of populations. We have a restriction to migration. We have a decoupling between U.S. and China. We have uh, global climate change that has an impact on energy prices, food prices, and many other commodity prices. We have recurrent global pandemics that imply, like the COVID-19, negative supply shock and shutdown of economic activity and higher costs. We'll have cyber warfare. We have a bigger geopolitical depression that's going to lead to deglobalization, fragmentation of the global economy, balkanization of global supply chains, reshoring rather than offshoring, friendshoring rather than offshoring, secure trade rather than free trade. And finally, we also have a backlash against liberal democracy because of the rise in income and wealth inequality. So fiscal policy is going to be pro-labor, pro-union, pro-workers, pro-unemployed, partial employed, rightly so, because otherwise you'll have social strife, if not really severe social unrest. But that's going to increase uh, wage growth, the reservation wage. We're also weaponizing the U.S. dollar and other currencies against the strategic rivals of the West, Iran, North Korea, Russia, soon enough China. Eventually that could lead to a weakening of the value of the dollar as the strategic rivals move away from dollar assets. And for the international system to function, you need something that greases the wheels of trade in goods, services, capital, labor, technology, that information. That's the US dollar. If you create friction and sand in the wheels, that increases the cost of all sorts of transactions, and that's also stagflationary. So it's not just the short-term factors, there are these medium-long-term factors that reduce growth, increase cost of production. And if I'm right that we're in a debt trap, central banks are not stupid or dumb, but they have so much debt in the system that if they try to fight inflation, not only they cause a hard landing and a severe one, but the financial crash. So they're trapped and they're left to monetize. By the way, we live in a world also in which now we'll have pressure to do so much more public spending. 
We have to fight against our strategic rivals, cold wars that may get hotter. So we have to spend on security in Europe against the Russian bear. We have to contain China. So everything's going to do more military and security spending. We'll have to spend a fortune to fight uh, global climate change. We'll have to spend a fortune to fight the next pandemic or prevent it. Uh, AI, robotic automation is going to lead to massive permanent technological unemployment. So we have to help those that are left behind. And there is so much inequality and risk of social thrive that fiscal policy will have to spend a lot of money to reduce inequality, to transfer money to those who are left behind, and so on and so on. So we're fighting something like five different parallel wars. All of them are going to lead to more government spending. We're going to raise taxes, but not sufficiently. Budget deficits are going to become much bigger. And either they crowd out their growth to higher interest rates, or we eventually monetize them, we end up in inflation. So we live in a world in which eventually uh, these are structural problems that may lead to inflation, to stagnation, to stagflation, to debt crisis, not just in the short run. I think that either we address this problem, we stop kicking the can down the road or putting our hands, uh, heads in the sand like ostriches, or we'll have significant mega threats that are going to damage our future, the future of our economy, our savings, our jobs, of the planet, and even of humanity. Yeah, so I think Nouriel's right to highlight this so-called polycrisis, which is a phrase that Adam too sort of coined. But, you know, we are facing an, a significant number of crises that are interlinked and we're facing them all at the same time. I think that's right. Um, and also there's a problem in that in economics, at least, our thinking uh, is quite siloed. So we don't really have a mechanism for thinking about the economy as a living, breathing organism, um, which faces many things. At the same time, economists haven't really had to deal with fiscal policy and climate change and war all, all at the same time before. So I'm not convinced that we have the kind of joined up thinking that we'll need to have to, to navigate the poly crisis. Megan Green is the global chief economist at the Kroll Institute. But to my mind, the, the challenges that Nouriel highlights may not all hit at the same time, and they may not all go to their worst extreme. Um, that's the good news, I guess, in terms of how we're going to navigate this polycrisis over the next couple of years. Um, but we are undoubtedly you know, facing a, a global slowdown. Um, the IMF has global growth at around 2.5%. Next year, that's incredibly low. It's, at least it's in growth territory. While we're all slowing down, we're seeing a global rate tightening cycle. Um, and so I think that's the biggest challenge that we're facing is sustained inflation. Nouriel mentioned stagflation. It could be even worse. We have sustained inflation and, and recessions. Um, and, you know, global debt to GDP is incredibly high. It is, I think, um, fairly unlikely that we're going to have rates hiked uh, globally, with the exception maybe of Japan and China that much debt on the table without seeing bankruptcies. The question is where those bankruptcies are going to come out. So we're going to have defaults. We just don't know where they'll be. So a lot of economists, Nouriel and myself included, I think, are trying to figure out where these pockets of bankruptcies are going to come. The question is, are these defaults going to be among systemically important companies and sectors? And also, are central bankers going to be able to step in and paper over them with liquidity operations, as we saw with the Bank of England stepping in to support the pension sector 
And the downside of, of central banks stepping in with liquidity operations is everybody looks at that and says, well, that's QE and QE is inflationary. And so if central banks keep doing this, you could see the markets decide that actually it's, it's inflationary at the end of the day. And that undermines what central banks are trying to do in leaning against inflation. Mm. Noriel, Megan mentioned there the prospect of recession, especially across developed countries. Um, the IMF figures, for example, that she cited, it's thought that the UK is already in recession and will be in the most optimistic scenarios for at least a year, if not longer. But if we go back to that list of concerns for the future and also growth prospects after the pandemic, can you think of particular examples where you think we're going to see real winners and where we're going to see real losers in terms of countries? Well, we're headed towards uh, most likely a global economic contraction. In advanced economies like the UK, most of the Eurozone, even the US, there'll be a recession. The only debate is on whether it's going to be short and shallow or more severe. And it's going to be associated with inflation still well above target, so it's stagflation. You know, in emerging markets, you might not have an outright uh, severe recessions, but you know, for a country like China, they used to grow 10%, then 5 uh, If their growth rate is only 2-3%, it's equivalent of a hard landing. And when China grows so slowly, many other emerging markets are going to be in trouble. These emerging markets are suffering themselves from high inflation and having to increase interest rates. Uh, as the Fed is increasing interest rates, their currency have weakened, and that's leading to a slowdown of economic activity. Those that are commodity importers have had also terms of trade shock. Uh, cost of importing food, raw materials, energy as a reason is only the exporters of commodities that are slightly better off. So it's a, it's a much more fragile world. Even the head of the IMF said that with a confluence of calamities that like we've never seen in decades. So it's a very fragile global economy. Mm. Some countries are doing better, you know, as China slowed down now, growth in India yeah. has risen 7% plus. There are some pockets of emerging market where things are, are, are okay. Of course, those that are energy exporters like uh, the Gulf countries are doing very well, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, and you name it, but it's a very small fraction of the global economy. When we talk about the global recovery and indeed the global economy, the truth is what that used to look like pre-pandemic may look very, very different in the years to come. And I'm particularly thinking about the process of decoupling between the West and countries like China, which is speeding up since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the dawning on many Western countries that they simply cannot be uh, as cozy to some of these other countries as they were previously. Megan, what do you make of the decoupling process and how this is going to change what we mean when we talk about the global economy? Yeah, look, I wouldn't overstate this argument that we're deglobalizing. I actually don't really buy it. I, I think of the economy as kind of a pyramid with different sectors in that pyramid. And at the tip of the pyramid are a few sectors that we've decided are of national strategic importance. And in those sectors, semiconductors, for example, we are decoupling. Absolutely. And the sectors that go into the tip of that pyramid change. So when the pandemic first hit, PPE went into that tip of the period, pyramid. 
Um, and no one would have expected that to be the case. We couldn't get PPE. All of a sudden, it was of national strategic importance. Um, now, semiconductors are certainly there, and they'll be there to stay. Pharmaceuticals, I think, um, are likely to go into the tip of that pyramid. You know, in the West, in in Europe and in the U.S., we're very reliant on China for a lot of the inputs for pharmaceuticals, for drugs. Um, so I think that's moving to the tip of the pyramid. But for all the other sectors, I actually don't think that we're decoupling. If you try to figure out what's happening with globalization, there's no uh, neat index to measure it, unfortunately. But you can look at a lot of different properties. World trade to GDP increased for years. Now it's flattened out. It hasn't tanked, though. It's just flattened out. If you look at the sticky money, FDI flows between the U.S. and China hit new highs every year and are on track to hit a, a new record high this year. If you look at the hot money, capital flows, um, there was a period right after Russia invaded Ukraine when a lot of capital came out of China, but that's since reversed, and it's probably to do more recently with the zero COVID policy, for example, than anything else. But capital flows suggests that we're, we're not decoupling. Um, and if you look at survey data, so the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, for example, asks U.S. companies in China whether they're planning on leaving, um, and if so, where they're going to. And overwhelmingly, firms say they're not planning on leaving China over the next five years. And in fact, they're there not because, not just because they want to hook into deep, um, sophisticated supply chains, but also because they want to sell into one of the biggest markets in the world. So I wouldn't overstate this idea that we're decoupling and deglobalizing. For a few specific sectors, we certainly are, and those sectors will change over time, I think. But for the, the rest, I think we're just globalizing more slowly. And so I'm less worried about um, the stagflationary impact of, of deglobalization because I don't really buy that it's happening across the entire economy. And Nouriel, when we're looking at the upcoming decade, to what extent is it helpful to be talking about the global recovery? Doesn't it make more sense to understand each economy for its individual growth and decline? Uh, well, it's a combination of both. Of course, there are specific uh, conditions in specific countries, but uh, I would say that the, the developments in the major economies in the world uh, affect the global economy. People say when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches the cold, <laughs> like they during do. the global financial crisis. But China is a big part of the global economy. If China were to falter the impact on emerging markets, but also on Europe, that is exporting a lot to China, will be significant. You know, a severe economic downturn uh, in Europe and the Eurozone could have a global effect. So. so what role will Britain play in the global economic recovery? Still struggling to return to pre-pandemic levels of GDP, the UK is now looking at a recession. Can it prop up other economies? Or as we discussed in the last episode, is the global Britain as we knew it over? Michael Jacobs is the Professor of Political Economy at the University of Sheffield and specializes in sustainable economic development. I think this is one of the great lessons of the last few years, which is that we are in a, an interdependent world and we are very dependent, the UK but also all other countries, on trade with uh, the rest of the world. I do think we should be talking about how to make those relationships and those trading relationships easier and talk of 
getting rid of all the European regulations that are still legal in the UK is very damaging to business. They don't want more regulation of a British kind, that they have to have different things to sell into the British market from selling into the European market. The whole point of the single market, which was, after all, Margaret Thatcher's creation, was that you got rid of bureaucracy. You got rid of all the individual regulations of nation states, and you aligned them all together so that businesses could sell easily into all the countries uh, of the European uh, Union. We can get closer to that again, and I think that is going to have to become part of our economic debate over the next few years uh, about how to get closer to the EU, even if obviously not to rejoin it. And the same is true with other countries. We need to uh, get trade agreements where we can. The Japanese one was good. Most of the ones that are trumpeted by the government were just rolling over the EU agreements we already had, which is obviously sensible once you've left, but does rather question why you bothered in the first place. And we have to maintain our relationships with, with all parts of the world. And that is how the whole world recovers. Uh, it is by trading with one another. Um, this is going to be difficult now um, because there is this uh, emphasis on reshoring, on bringing things back to the country. And I think that in many cases can be good. I think it is dangerous that uh, the West, Europe in particular, the UK included, has become so dependent on China for some key technologies. I think it is better that we develop those ourselves, but trying to do them just in the UK is not going to work. That is probably a European uh, venture now. Similarly, America has gone down the route of saying, to go towards their net zero strategy. They want to produce more of the technologies that are needed for that, the green technologies in the US. I think that's an essential way of winning support for that agenda in the US. The EU, I think, is going to have to do the same. So there's areas of technological cooperation, which may not be the whole world, but maybe uh, our, with our allies, which I think are going to be important. And many developing countries are really suffering now because of the uh, rise of the dollar, which has devalued their own currency, which has made all their debts, which are denominated in dollars, which has made oil denominated in dollars much more expensive and difficult. And I do think we have a role in helping relieve debt, the debt crisis that is now hitting many parts of the world, and to do our part to help the poorest countries be part of that global uh, recovery. And what about emerging markets, Michael? What economic support are they looking for? Well, it is clearly a great shame um, that our aid budget has been reduced so much. And it isn't just that we've reduced it from the 0.7% of national income that we had promised for a long time and then achieved. And then we cut that to a legal maximum of 0.5%. But much of our aid budget is now actually going to the UK because it's supporting uh, the refugees that we've accepted um, uh, and other uh, migrants from Ukraine and elsewhere, which is not what aid was originally intended uh, for. And if you talk to people in the development field, they are really feeling the effects of the cuts in British aid. So that is a, a huge shame. And I would like to see that restored as soon as uh, possible. I think the emerging markets, which are the, the, the middle income countries, some of which are very large, like India, Brazil, others are smaller, but 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 growing and becoming more important, like Ghana, um, uh, for example, South Africa is obviously really important uh, too. I think these are key allies in trying to create a better world. We no longer live in a world that is divided between Russia and the US, as we once did, um, uh, and no longer a world which is dominated only by America, as we once did. We are now in a multipolar world in which China is obviously very significant. Russia remains significant, as we know. The US, Europe, 
Um, and now there are these big emerging economies that want to contribute to the shaping of the multilateral world order. Um, India is the presidency of the G20 in 2023 and will be very, very active in that role, trying to reshape the way in which the international financial system works. The country that's chair of the presidency of the G20 after that, 2024, is Brazil, now under a president who wants to engage in the world, uh, President Lula, I think you'll see very active presidencies from those two countries. And it's obviously very important for the UK to be part of those conversations. We're an important G20 member, we're an important G7 uh, member, and we have a role to play in helping the world recover from COVID, recover from the current uh, crises, obviously with energy prices, and to build a world that is uh, able to deal with climate change and environmental crisis, which in many ways is the greatest uh, of the threats facing us. Some have spoken in favor of creating something like an economic NATO. Do you think that recent events have increased the urgency for some kind of body like that? I don't see how you could do an economic NATO. We, of course, have just left the nearest equivalent. And, you know, the big elephant in the room is Brexit, which is a a huge, has a huge economic impact on the UK. You cannot cut ties, cut all that simple import-export that we were able to do in the single market with your largest trading partner and not expected to have a massive effect. And it is having a massive effect already. Lots of businesses are just ceasing to trade with Europe. Our trade is right down um, with Europe. It seems kind of inconceivable to me that we would then try and rejoin some other organization, an economic NATO. But also because I presume an economic NATO would include the US, and we have tricky relationships with the US. Um, the US is a is obviously a major trading partner, but it is also becoming more protectionist. In some ways, for good reasons, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a climate change act, is finally putting America on a path to decarbonization, but it's doing so by protecting their own industries and, and making sure that as much as possible of the technologies needed to decarbonize are made in the US. And that is causing problems for the EU and a little bit for the UK, which wanted to do some of that trade themselves. So I don't really see that that is a way forward that that really has very much chance. I do think, however, that it's been very interesting that um, the West has shown much more solidarity with Ukraine um, than I think certainly Putin was expecting, but I think actually many Europeans expected. And I think the sense of that, you know, Ukrainians are fighting not just for their own country, but for democracy and, and Western values um, has galvanized a lot of capitals in, in Europe and across the, the, the north of the world, um, which includes some southern countries like Australia, some geographically southern countries. And I think that solidarity is good. China is clearly now out to dominate uh, economically as much as it can in, in the way that the European Union and the US have, have also tried. And that's going to be difficult. And we need to have a robust response in many cases to that. So I think the general sense of a Western alliance has, has been strengthened by uh, the invasion of uh, Ukraine and our reaction to it. But I don't think that's going to form any new economic alliances. Michael, my last question to you is in this post-COVID economic era we're in, how do you think we should be measuring what a successful economy is? Uh, Do you think GDP is still the best measurement or would you look elsewhere? That's a really good question. And a lot of thought has been going into this. GDP measures the the, uh, amount of money flowing around the economy, which turns up as income or expenditure. Uh, depending on how it's counted. It's a very important uh, indicator of 
uh, of precisely that, how large the uh, economy is, at least the bit that flows through money, because obviously quite a lot of work, such as housework and childcare, is not done uh, with money transactions. But the money economy is well measured by GDP, and we clearly need to know that. The problem is that GDP has often been used as a proxy for the success of the economy, and there was a good reason for that. Basically, as economies got larger after the Second World War, when GDP first started to be used, uh, they were more uh, successful. They clearly provided more incomes for people, more jobs, they funded uh, taxes, which uh, through taxes, they funded wealth, the welfare state and housing and so on. So for a long time, probably 45 to 1945 to 1975, it was pretty reasonable to use GDP, GDP as a proxy for the performance of the economy and the well-being of the nation. But since around 1975, and certainly since the 1980s, it's not been true to say that if GDP rises, the economy is therefore doing well and people are better off. You can measure this in a number of different ways. So one is inequality. Inequality has risen a lot, particularly wealth inequality over the last 10 years. And before that, in the 1980s, income inequality. And if you care about that, and obviously you have to care about it to, to, uh, to agree with this point, GDP doesn't measure it. GDP is an aggregate measure. It doesn't measure the distribution um, uh, of national income. And so I don't think it is true anymore when sometimes when GDP uh, grows, inequality grows, that it therefore you can say that GDP growth is in itself measuring the success of the economy. Similarly, on the environment, we know that um, broadly speaking, when GDP grows, the environment has got worse because we have been using more resources and polluting more. We can change that. Um, and we have begun to do so with uh, greenhouse gas emissions, where now growth doesn't generate um, more greenhouse gas emissions because we're reducing them faster than the rate of growth. But it also isn't true to say that if GDP grows, therefore the environment is getting better. So we need to measure the environment in its own terms. And similarly with with well-being, you know, people, I think many people feel in their own lives, income isn't everything. I think that's a fairly uh, normal thought. And it's true of a nation as well. What matters are, are the, the, the society we live in, whether there's crime, whether there's trust, whether there's a democracy, whether there's uh, a sense of community. And all of those things are not measured by GDP. So a lot of work has gone into trying to find alternative indicators, not to replace GDP, because GDP does what it does quite well, but to find better ways of capturing all the different things that make for a successful economy. And then, of course, making sure that you use those indicators to guide policy. And you're not simply focused on trying to raise GDP because you, you think or you hope that that will make everything else better when it now clearly doesn't. You need to focus on the specific things you want to improve. Well, people will differ about what those are, but I don't think very many people would now say GDP going up automatically means that everything else is fine. The vulnerabilities that COVID exposed have far outlasted the pandemic. Debt levels, problems with supply chains, inflation, it's all highlighted how interdependent we are. As we continue to try to recover, we are faced with a very difficult winter ahead people falling into poverty, choosing between heating and eating, worrying about how they're going to pay their next bill. On both the domestic and international level, there are huge questions that governments must come to terms with. But we are not going to succeed if the economy isn't growing, not just in the UK, but in the wider world. Thank you to all my guests, Simon Clark, Nouriel Rubini, Megan Green, and Michael Jacobs for joining me on this special episode of The Spectator's Podcast, sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs>